David Beeston, welcoming you to chapter 164 of A History of England. Across these last few episodes, charting a time of sustained dominance in Britain by the Conservative Party under Lord Salisbury, we rather lost sight of what was happening to the once Grand Liberal Party. It, however, was going through some crucial changes, with significant new figures beginning to emerge. One of them we've met before, if only glancingly, and it's time to get better acquainted with him. When David Lloyd George first erupted into the Westminster Parliament, it was as a champion of Welsh rights. Ironically, he was born in England, but only because his parents happened to be in Manchester at the time. He was brought up in Wales as a Welsh speaker and as a non-conformist Protestant, like most Welshmen. Lloyd George's family was humble, though not suffering the back-breaking poverty described by men like Charles Booth that we talked about before. He would later say that the last sixpence of every week was a coin of destiny. My mind was impressed at the time by the terrible importance every week of the last sixpence, and it is still impressed upon my mind. It is the strongest impression of childhood. He emerged with a deep dislike of wealth inequality, a problem he wanted to solve by taxing owners of unearned wealth who lived from the income it generated often from the work of tenant smallholders paying excessive rents. His biographer, the 20th century Labour politician Roy Hattersley, quotes a speech of his in 1885, before he'd even been elected to Parliament. I want you not to accept as final or as perfect arrangements under which hundreds of thousands, many millions of your fellow countrymen, are subject to untold misery with the evidence all around them of accumulated wealth and undoubted luxury. I believe the great evil with which we have to deal is the excessive inequality in the distribution of riches. He was a firebrand of radical causes, though not consistently so. Indeed, inconsistency, even downright opportunism, was very much a hallmark of his. As a keen imperialist, he had first supported General Gordon's expedition into Sudan when Gladstone, leader of Lloyd George's own Liberal Party, was Prime Minister in the 1880s. That support evaporated when the expedition turned bad, with Gordon's death in Khartoum. Hattersley tells us, Lloyd George was by instinct an imperialist, though in that, as in much else, more flexible than consistent. There is no record of him criticising the Sudanese adventure before it went wrong. What Lloyd George disliked most about Gladstone was the party's fixation on home rule for Ireland. More to the point, he loathed his party's obsession with solving Irish grievances while saying nothing about those of the Welsh which, in his view, weren't that different. Much of Welsh land was owned by English landlords seen as a foreign caste and as Anglicans, for the most part, of an alien religion in a nonconformist land. Many were Baptists, and Lloyd George himself had been brought up as a Calvinist Methodist. Just like Irish Catholics, these Welsh nonconformists financed the Anglican Church, in this case called the Church of Wales, through tithes, church taxes. This felt quite simply like an English ascendancy, similar to Ireland's Protestant ascendancy. After becoming an MP in 1890, Lloyd George took a leaf out of the book of the Irish leader Charles Parnell 
running a campaign of parliamentary disruption. He became a thorn in the side of his own party as much as an irritation to the Tories, frustrating everyone by one of the most tiresome tactics in a parliamentarian's arsenal, forcing long and tedious debates on measures which even their backers knew would be defeated when it came to a vote. Indeed, Lloyd George and his supporters even tried to set up an independent Liberal Party in Wales to play the same role for the Principality as Parnell's Irish Party had played for Ireland. However, that initiative ultimately failed when he was outmanoeuvred by other Welsh Liberals who disagreed with his methods. Lloyd George was one of the much-reduced band of Liberal MPs who survived the shipwreck of the Tory landslide win in the 1895 general election, and one of the Radicals who didn't follow Joseph Chamberlain to the Liberal Unionists in disgust over the party's commitment to home rule. Following the election, and cheated of setting up an independent Liberal Party for Wales, he now began to switch his attention to more general questions, rather than focusing on Welsh issues. You may remember from chapter 154 that the Liberals under Lord Rosebery were riven by splits, often more personal than political. Rosebery, who sat in the Lords and led the Liberals there, got on so badly with William Harcourt, his Chancellor of the Exchequer and Leader of the Commons, that there came a point where they were no longer even on speaking terms, which was awkward given that they sat in the same cabinet. Following the 1895 election, however, the Liberals began to sort out these dissensions. Little over a year after the election, in October 1896, Rosebery suddenly announced that he was going to step down as Liberal leader, a decision he took without consultation, unilaterally, as was very much his way. Harcourt took over, but without great enthusiasm, dismayed by the opposing currents flowing through his party. On the one hand stood Liberal imperialists like Rosebery, and indeed the rising star Herbert Asquith, and on the other, men unfairly referred to as Little Englanders, anxious to avoid imperial overreach, such as Harcourt himself. Harcourt's failure in 1896 to hold the Salisbury government to account for the disastrous Jameson raid into the Transvaal, and to push the investigation far enough to expose Joseph Chamberlain's involvement, strengthened the opposition to him in the party. He hung on until 1898, however, when, exasperated by the internal squabbles among liberals, he too stood down. These resignations and internal quarrels held back attempts to rebuild the liberals and make possible its eventual return to office. But at least the departures cleared the decks and allowed the emergence of a new generation of potential leaders untainted by these disputes of the past. There were two front-runners for the leadership after Harcourt's departure. One was Herbert Asquith, who had made an enviable name for himself as Home Secretary in the previous Liberal administrations under Gladstone and then Rosebery. The other was Henry Campbell Bannerman, 20 years Asquith's senior, and with significantly greater ministerial experience, including a stint in the crucial position of Chief Secretary for Ireland and, most recently, as Secretary of State for War. In that last post, he'd introduced an eight-hour day for workers at the Arsenal in Woolwich, and, having established that it had led to no loss of productivity, extended the initiative to all employees of the ministry. That met a rising demand among working-class movements for a working day limited to eight hours across all industry. 
He wasn't, however, a radical, but much more of a centrist. Asquith, on the other hand, was firmly on the right, a liberal imperialist in the Rosebery mould. There was considerable support for Asquith to take over, but many more felt it was too soon, and Campbell Bannerman was better qualified. Even Asquith agreed, and he quickly consented to serve under Campbell Bannerman, who duly became leader. Asquith worked hard with him to re-establish liberal unity. It looked as though the party was, at last, climbing back up the long hill that might return it to government. Then it ran into the desperate train wreck of the Boer War. You'll remember that Salisbury had played a cunning game in the run-up to the outbreak of the fighting to try to make it look as though the aggression had come from the other side. And indeed it was the Boer Republics that started the war when they sent forces into British-held territory in Natal and Cape Colony. Those incursions, together with the earlier accusations against Transvaal of denying rights to outlanders, the foreign and mainly British immigrants who poured in to work the newly discovered gold mines, turned public and political opinion in Britain heavily against the Boers. The Tories massively backed the war, and a sizable section of the Liberals did too. Asquith was a leading figure in that tendency within the Liberals. Campbell Bannerman at first backed military action, partly out of conviction, partly to try to hold his party together. However, he also stood with Lloyd George on the left in utterly rejecting the hawkish stance of the staunchly imperialistic colonial secretary, Joseph Chamberlain. Campbell Bannerman declared that he was anti-Joe, but never pro-Kruger, referring to the Transvaal president, Paul Kruger. Lloyd George was just as anti-Joe, but he went much further. Seeing in the Boers a nation like Wales made up of farmers struggling to make a living and maintain a way of life threatened by a huge alien power, he found himself backing Kruger, a strange position for a radical of the left. As Asquith's biographer Roy Jenkins puts it, by one of the great ironies of history, Lloyd George made his reputation as a man of the left by this starry-eyed championing of a community now almost universally regarded as the most reactionary in the whole world. Liberal divisions emerged clearly in voting on a motion to insert into the loyal address to the Queen words expressing strong disapproval of the conduct of the negotiations with the government of the Transvaal, which have involved us in hostilities with the two South African republics. The anti-government motion was heavily defeated on the 19th of October 1899, in the week following the outbreak of war, but Asquith and Edward Grey, the Liberals' foreign policy spokesman, voted with Salisbury's Tory government, while Campbell Bannerman abstained, and Lloyd George, along with 135 of the 186 Liberal MPs, voted against the government and for the motion. Split parties don't win elections. And with at least one glaring exception in 1945, prime ministers that have just won wars tend to get re-elected. Salisbury's khaki election of 1900 took place in September and October when it looked as though Britain had won the Boer War. The government could claim additional success in China, where earlier that year it had taken action with other powers against a secret organisation known as the Society of Righteous and Harmonious Fists, whose promotion of Chinese martial arts gave their uprising the nickname in the West of Boxer Rebellion. 
It opposed the power of foreign nations within China and was duly put down by those foreign nations with all the executions and plundering of the Chinese capital you might expect. As well as their victory, the collaboration between the great powers in China had the merit of marking a temporary lull in the tensions that at the time dogged their relations. Everything therefore pointed to another Tory landslide for Salisbury, and he duly achieved one. Three landslides in three successive elections. That's something not many prime ministers have pulled off. Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair did it in recent times, but it's still an exceptional achievement. However, though the majority of 134 was certainly a landslide, it was nine down on 1895. The Liberals were up six parliamentary seats. Given the unfavourable circumstances in which they had to campaign, it was a less bad result for them than might have been expected. They still had a mountain to climb, but they had at least taken a first small step in the foothills. Given the pro-war sentiment was sweeping the country, Lloyd George went into the election in some fear of losing his seat and, potentially, ending his political career. He was, however, re-elected with a majority of 296, hardly earth-shattering, but a 100 votes more than when he originally took the seat in 1890. Speaking out against the war had been risky, but it had turned him into a national figure and he'd held his seat in any case. Two other remarkable figures won parliamentary seats in 1900. Keir Hardy of the Independent Labour Party, having lost his London seat in West Ham in 1895, was returned for Merthyr Tydfil in Wales, a constituency he would hold until just before his death 15 years later. Labour was back in Parliament. Winston Churchill, keen to get into politics after his return from South Africa, had failed to win a seat in Oldham near Manchester for the Conservatives in a by-election, but took one in 1900. That was the start of a parliamentary career which, with just one brief interruption, was going to last nearly 64 years. As I'm sure you can imagine, we'll be hearing more about both of them. Before I go, let me tell you about the first book in the series accompanying the A History of England podcast. It's now available for Kindle on Amazon, with the paperback following soon. Book 1 covers the first 35 episodes from Henry VIII to William III, giving it its subtitle, From a Bloody Tudor to a Stuart's Bloody End. Something else for you to enjoy. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 